All right, welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt podcast, episode 20. We finally made it here. We're going to talk about Homer's Iliad, book five, part one. Last time we spoke, we talked about the actions of Pandaros and their and the consequences of those actions, the bleeding Menelaus, Agamemnon's speech, uh, the fight at Troy uh, resuming after the would-be ending of the combat due to the one-on-one -on -one combat between Menelaus and Paris, which proved inconclusive, and then Agamemnon going up and down the ranks, showing essentially his value system was the claim I made, as well as showing the prowess of particular fighters. One interesting thing I forgot to notice or to, to share with you last time was that during the argument between Odysseus and Agamemnon, Odysseus makes sure to respond to Agamemnon, and Agamemnon then does something which shows some maturity from him and potential recognition of the value of Odysseus, which is this. He actually apologizes to Odysseus and makes amends with him so that Odysseus will fight. And then Odysseus goes out and does kill a man and shows great prowess on the battlefield, indicating that Agamemnon may be growing as a leader even through his interactions with Odysseus, which is fascinating. And so, let's jump in. Book five will feature Diomedes' Aristea. So what is an Aristea? Aristea is an abstract noun based on the noun aristos, which means, or rather the adjective aristos, which means the best, and from which our political system called an aristocracy ruled by the best comes. So how does an Aristea apply to this text? Well, basically what will happen is that any fighter on the battlefield who goes through essentially a killing spree, who really does very well and is extraordinarily effective on the battlefield, well, he's the best man of the day, and therefore it is said that he has an Aristea. We'll see Aristeas not only by Diomedes, but also by Idomeneus, Agamemnon, Achilleus, Patroclus, and I believe even Hector. Hector will do very well for a time. And so let's meet Diomedes again. Meet Diomedes, the son of Tydeus. He's beloved by Athena, and she makes him shine like a fire or a star, which means what? He's a standout. And those who have competency and are thus beloved by Athena, well, they certainly stand out like rams amongst the sheep, as Odysseus was described in Book 3. And Diomedes immediately shows his prowess. He kills a man named Phegeus and almost a person named Adias. But it's said that Hephaestus loves that man, and Hephaestus goes to save him. Um... And, well, perhaps later we'll be able to consider exactly what that means. While Diomedes is fighting, Athena shows her prowess and her superiority to Ares by cleverly tricking him into getting out of the battle. What she does is she goes to sit by him and she says, Ares, let us two sit out beside the battle so that Zeus does not become angry with us. Because apparently she understands that Zeus has made an agreement with Thetis and that Zeus is going to try and bring about an outcome to the battle regardless of the will of the lesser gods. What does this also show? This also shows that Athena has recognized, based on what Zeus said to her and Hera while making fun of her, that Aphrodite and Ares, who are on the battlefield, they need to go. Why do they need to go? Well, Aphrodite saved Paris from the one-on-one -on -one combat with Menelaus, effectively keeping the war alive. That's a problem. Ares is also down on the battlefield, helping to motivate and pump up and keep ordered and keep the violence and savagery high in the hearts of the Trojans. That's also a problem. Apollo, the third god on the Trojan side, well, he's not as much of a problem right now. He's on the Trojan walls, keeping them defended, which means that any Achaean, champion or otherwise, who faces those walls, 
may face certain death because Apollo is far stronger than Aphrodite and Ares. Um, he is only weaker by most accounts than Athena and Zeus. So he's very powerful. And in fact, during the Iliad, he'll be effectively invincible. <clears throat> and so while the battle is occurring, I thought I might share this quote with you from Book 5, 65, line 65 to 69. It involves Marianes. And remember what we said of Marianes. He's the henchman of Idomeneus the Cretan, who brought 80 ships to Troy. And I said of him that he likes to kill people in nasty ways and hear them scream as they die. Well, here's the first evidence of this. This man, Marianes, pursued and overtaking him, struck in the right buttock, and the spear drove right on and passing under the bone, went into the bladder. He dropped, screaming to his knees, and death was a mist about him. And so just to let you know that Marianes is a nasty piece of work, he really is. But now let's transition on. Recall what was said about minor characters when they strike major characters, Pandaros in particular. He shot an arrow at Menelaus, didn't kill him. And so according to this equation, as a minor character who injured a major character, he ought to die. Well, <clears throat> before that happens, he's actually going to hit another major character, Diomedes. He's going to shoot him with an arrow in the shoulder. And in fact, he gives quite the speech beforehand, praying and hoping that, the zoot, that he'll be helped to shoot Diomedes down. And he is extraordinarily frustrated when his arrow simply hits Diomedes in the shoulder. In fact, he looks at his bow and he, he hopes that if it doesn't accomplish its purpose, he will have his head cut off when he returns to Troy. He wants to break it. It's essentially like a baseball player who breaks his bat over his knee, like Bo Jackson once did. I think Bo Jackson actually did over it. No, yes, he did do it over his knee. It's like a baseball player, after getting out, blaming the bat rather than his own skill. Pandaros is having an off day. He's angry at his bow. So, Diomedes then has Thinalus, his charioteer, with whom he's moving, remove the arrow from his shoulder. He then prays to Athena for the strength to kill Pandaros. Well, this is perfect for Athena. She hears Diomedes. He's competent. In fact, often when Odysseus is given a task, Diomedes will go with him. When it comes to the, when it will come to the Dolinea, the spy mission in Book 10, Diomedes will accompany Odysseus. Other events surrounding the Iliad also involve Diomedes and Odysseus. The collection of Achilleus' son Neoptolemus will be by Odysseus and Diomedes. The collection of Philoctetes, well, actually that will just be Neoptolemus and Odysseus. But particularly the sealing of the Palladium from Troy will be done by Odysseus and Diomedes with the help of Helen, which is very similar to the helping of Rahab, the prostitute of the two spies of Joshua at the taking of Jericho. So Athena hears the prayer of Diomedes and she goes down to him quickly. <clears throat> she makes a deal with him. She says, Diomedes, I will at least take the pain away from your wound. He do she doesn't quite heal it. And I'll give you the ability to see the gods on the battlefield. And particularly, he will want to be seeing Aphrodite now because she's the only active Trojan god on the field um, while Ares is not there. He will <clears throat> later take the field. And she says, Diomedes, I'm going to relieve you of your pain. Would you mind understand? She relieves him of his pain by giving him meaning in the situation so that he can embrace his destiny and move past the pain. Well, she's giving him the ability to see the gods so that he can go to fight 
Aphrodite. And so in being given a purpose, his eyes are opened and his pain is relieved. And he immediately sets about to doing as she says. She does give one warning, though. She says, if you see another god on the battlefield, do not engage. And seeing as she's the goddess of wisdom, if she gives you advice, that's essentially a command. Otherwise, you're going against wisdom. You're doing something stupid. Well, now we have a major fight. Pandaros has joined up with a major Trojan, the number three Trojan named Aeneas. In fact, the Trojan command structure could be seen as this. Hector is the field marshal. Sarpedon, lord of the Lycaeans, is the number two guy. And then Aeneas, lord of the Dardanians, is the number three guy. Aeneas, son of Aphrodite, will actually be the major character in the Aeneid, which will be the third epic that we consider together. <clears throat> so you might imagine that he doesn't die here. Aeneas takes Pandarus into his chariot. Diomedes is in the chariot with Stenelus. And in fact, Stenelus makes a big, big mistake. When he sees Pandarus and Aeneas, he shows a lack of courage, as arrogant as his father Capaneus was, and as arrogant as he was in the wake of Agamemnon speaking to him. He suggests these two men, they're very threatening, Pandaros and Aeneas together. They're champions of Troy. We should not engage them. Diomedes says, argue me not to do this. He completely refuses retreat, remembering his purpose given to him by Athena. Uh, second funny thing to mention is why is it that Pandaros, who's himself a lord of men, doesn't have his own chariot if he's not just a commoner? Well, that was mentioned earlier. He, he left his chariots at home before he came to war. What does that say about him? He has very, very poor judgment. Also, the next reason that Diomedes may very well want to take out <clears throat> Aeneas is that Diomedes is often described as a breaker of horses, suggesting that because he comes from the plain of Argos that he very much values horses. Well, Trojans and those who are their allies, well, they live along a pl an Asiatic plain like Sparta, and their, which is Greek, um, or Hellene, and therefore they breed excellent, excellent horses. And while Aeneas has horses that had been given to Tros, who was a king of Troy, who gave the name of Troy to Troy. In fact, Troy is called Troy or Ilion, and Ilion from the name of Elos, which eventually becomes Eulus, which eventually becomes Eulius, which eventually becomes Julius, which is where we get our month of July. And so, these horses were apparently stolen by Aeneas's father Anchises, Anchises, or rather their foals were, and so he has excellent God-bred horses that Diomedes wants, and well, he may well get them, because the fight begins. Pandaros throws first, lines 5, 275 to 351. He hits the shield of Diomedes, no impact. Well, Diomedes' aim is far more true. He throws his spear at such an oblique angle that it goes in through Pandaros' mouth, cuts out the back of his tongue, and then comes out the bottom of his chin. I always have to take a moment to parse that out with the students because it's as if he threw his spear from directly above <clears throat> Pandaros. And it's a very grisly, grisly way to die. Um, Homer is extraordinarily descriptive in his descriptions of deaths.
leading some medical doctors to believe that he must actually have witnessed this. And it is said at least of one or two of the deaths that I've seen, I can look up the specific instances, that he is accurate in describing how the person would die afterwards, which is incredible. Well, Pandaros, he's dead. And we expected that because he was a minor character who injured not only one major character, but two major characters. Well, Aeneas sees this and jumps down from the chariot to defend the body of Pandaros because he doesn't want him to be stripped of his armor and have his glory taken from him because if your armor is taken, it's like having something akin to your character taken or your reputation taken or your soul taken. It's a big issue. And in fact, major champions who die, their bodies will be fought over tremendously. And in fact, when Patroclus eventually dies, there will be bodies mounted on top of him so high that you can no longer see him. So... Aeneas jumps down to defend his friend Pandaros, his ally Pandaros. What does Diomedes do? Well, he picks up a huge rock, and the rock is described as bigger than, bigger than the sort of rock that two men could even pick up these days. So the suggestion is Diomedes has the strength of old, of tradition behind him. He can pick up a rock that not, and throw it. He can pick up and throw a rock that not even two men of his day could even pick up together. So he's extraordinarily strong, and so he picks up this rock and he hurls it, and it crushes Aeneas's hip. It's, it's actually quite a gruesome description. It describes Aeneas's, um, the tendon holding his, <coughs> I believe it's right hip together, separating from the bone. And he goes down to the ground in utter agony, and Diomedes is about to fell him because he has defeated him when Aphrodite approaches to save her son and cover him in a mist, thinking that she can save him as easily as her son Paris. However, or not her son Paris, but her favorite Paris. Well, surprise, surprise for her. Actually, Diomedes can see gods, and so what does he do? As she tries to carry Aeneas away, he pricks her in the hand with a spear. Just the hand, and in fact, it leaves such a small mark, supposedly, that Athena later makes fun of her, saying, Oh, what happened to you? Did you, did you take a golden pin and prick yourself while you, were, while you were trying to mess around with the marriage of another lady? Ooh. Of course, referencing Helen and why this whole war started and suggesting that, well, Aphrodite, you can expect to feel some pain based on this war, just as all of us have as well, which is an interesting message. Ecor is the name of the blood of the gods, by the way. And one thing you should know is that nectar is what they drink, not, not wine. Ambrosia is what they eat, and ecor is what they bleed. So everything about them is different from humans, except for the images which they often take. And so even though she's just been struck in the hand, Aphrodite, dainty as she is and not made for the works of war, as Zeus will soon mention to her, as Athena makes fun of her, he'll actually smile, understanding that her role is certainly not in war, but to cause the sort of conflicts that might result to war, or result in war. And so she drops her son. Oh my gosh, Aeneas, you're dead. No, Apollo shows up out of nowhere and actually gets the job done. And amazingly, he immediately heals Aeneas, so he'll be back on the battlefield before the end of book five, which the students often say, wow, isn't that unfair? And I say, well, that's exactly why Athena wants to get these gods off the battlefield, um, because they're helping the Trojans out way too 
much. And in fact, the only reason the Trojans can stand against the Achaeans, who have such a mighty force and a more disciplined, and even have better, stronger, more disciplined, more rigorous gods on their side, is because the gods are helping out the Trojans more than the Achaeans are being helped. And even you notice... When the Achaean gods so far have helped the Achaeans, particularly Athena giving vision to Diomedes, you notice that she has done little for him. She's only given him opportunities. She's relieved him of pain and given him the ability to see the gods. She's actually done nothing specifically for him in terms of achieving anything for him. She's given him the opportunity. And this is how she, this is how she illustrates the fact that purpose and meaning in a person's life can relieve them of pain and open their eyes to the truth of things. Well, after this happens, there's a drama, a drama, a drama that which occurs on Olympus. Excuse me. Aphrodite retreats back up to Olympus, and there her mother Dione. And Dione is certainly an invention of Homer. It is a feminine version of the name for Zeus, and so therefore might be translated as female Zeus, mother of Aphrodite. Dione comforts her son, her daughter, and Aphrodite bitterly complains about Diomedes suggesting that those men who vie with the gods do not often live long and prosperous lives. And something interesting about Diomedes is that, unlike the vast majority of Achaean champions, he will make it home, and he will make it home in a good state. Though his wife, Aegealia, well, they won't work out. However, even in the Aeneid, Diomedes will be seen as a major threat to the Trojans, who are trying to become Romans at that point. And he, though he vies with gods, he actually has a pretty good fate. He and Nestor, one might say, get off the easiest of any of the Achaeans while they go home, perhaps because they're the most dutiful of the individuals. Well, Aphrodite is then healed by Apollo and his function as Paeon. Paeon is his name as healer god. And so if you see Paeon, Paeon, that means Apollo. And, well, Ares, back down on the battlefield, starts to give strength to the Trojans. And then, well, then we meet for the first time Sarpedon. And Sarpedon gives something of a talking to, to Hector. <clears throat> Remember that Sarpedon is the number two guy for the Trojans and also a son of Zeus, so he's extraordinarily gifted. And he's extremely noble as well. So what does he do? Well, he makes the claim to Hector. He says, Hector, I can't believe you're holding back on the fighting now. I could have sworn that you once said... <clears throat> that you and your brothers alone without any of us allies could defend Troy. However, I find myself fighting harder than you are, even though I come from Ikea, where my home, family, and possessions are far from the invading Achaeans. He's very similar to Achilleus in saying he doesn't actually have any personal responsibility in this battle. He's, if he dies, he loses some glory, or rather, he gives some glory to someone else. And this is actually something he explicitly says to his henchman Glaucus. He says, when they first take the field, he says, well, Glaucus, we really need to either we need to go onto the battlefield and win glory for ourselves or fall and give glory to another. And he just has a beautiful perspective on things. We'll return to Sarpedon multiple times. And in fact, when he eventually will die in battle against Patroclus, we'll have to consider the tragedy of the situation because the two individuals at that point might be the two individuals we most want not to die and we most want to be friends. And in fact, the horrors of war will... And the horrors of life, you might say, sometimes lead to such tragic situations. Even more tragic, I would say, than the death of Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet, which is often held up as a tragic masterpiece. Um, but still not quite as tragic as, say, Oedipus discovering that he's laying with his mother and killed his father. 
Hmm. So, Sarpedon reminds Hector, you better fight Hector because if you lose, your brothers die, your sisters die, your father dies, your mother dies, or is at least a slave, and your whole, perhaps your son dies too. Your whole people will fall, your family will die, and everybody else you know who's not dead will be a slave, and Troy will be gone. This knocks the spirit into Hector. And as this is happening, Apollo heals Aeneas, and he re-enters the battle. So, before we get on to the fight between Tlepolemus, a son of Heracles, and Sarpedon, a son of Zeus, therefore making them, I believe, cousins, because Tlepolemus is the son of Heracles, Heracles is the son of Zeus, which means that, or excuse me, nephews, because if Tlepolemus is the grandson of Zeus and Sarpedon is the son of Zeus, though they're only related by Zeus, not by their mothers, um, Sarpedon's mother being Laodamea, and Tlepolemus' mother being I do not know, <clears throat> I suppose that means that Sarpedon is the half-uncle of Tlepolemus, but that will not, they will not have any love lost between them. And so, in our next talk, we will encounter the fight between Tlepolemus and Sarpedon. We will see Athena continue to assist um, Diomedes, and we will also see Diomedes get to fight against Ares, the manslaughtering, the bloodstained, the stormer of strong walls. And then we'll also see an interaction in heaven again between, or on Olympus, uh, essentially the same idea, between both Zeus and Ares, and we will see that Zeus represents the principle of order in society, and Ares represents the principle of conflict, and therefore Zeus will share his hate with his blood-stained son. And so, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This has been Homer's Iliad, Book 5, Part 1. We've reviewed the initial stages of Diomedes' Aristea, his ability to see gods, his injury by Pandaros, his then kill of Pandaros, which is wonderful for him, his injuring of Aeneas by a rock, Aphrodite attempting to save Aeneas, failing, and Apollo actually doing it, and then healing him. After a talking to by Sarpedon to Hector. Hector gets spirited and back in the fight, and then Aeneas is healed and thrown back into the fight. I don't know if I already said that, but I said it again. So, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Please listen. Please share. Please call in. I love doing this, and I'm looking forward to offering thousands and thousands of more hours. Have a great day.